Well, you all look today. We'll see how you look. Actually, everyone looks pretty good so far. Maybe by the end of the service we'll begin to wilt. Hopefully not. I'm actually pretty pumped today. I think before this service is over, you're going to be astounded by some of the understanding that we will have by the time it's done. Feast of Tabernacles begins Friday evening at 7.30 p.m. at Tanner Amphitheater. I think that's about all we have to announce at this point, other than we need to all get ready, and you already know that. So everyone's feverishly trying to get everything ready to go to the feast, and that's exciting in itself. There are people already here and a few more on their way here to attend with us, and I always find that exciting as well. Now, in the sermonette, we were hearing about preparing for the wedding, and we focused last year very much on the symbolism of atonement and how it actually is the symbol of the at-one-ment of Christ and his bride, the actual wedding and the consummation thereof where they become at one is what atonement overall pictures, and Satan forever then being put out of that marriage or away from it so that there is no way that it can ever be separated. There will never be divorce. There will never be any problems in that marriage from that point forward, from the day that it is consummated forevermore. Now, I've got a question for you today. When you marry someone and you stand before whoever it is, whether it's a justice of the peace or a minister or whoever, Generally, our tradition in this country today is, at some point in that ceremony, they will say, do you, Bob, accept Loretta? And you say, I do. And they'll say, Loretta, then do you accept Bob? I do. What if you didn't know their name? <clears throat> Would you have a problem? Would you marry someone whose name you didn't know? Hmm. Do you, Bob, take, uh, <clears throat> what's her name, I'm not sure, to be your lawful wedded husband or wife? I don't think so. You need to know them better than that before you marry them. I have, over the years, read various things about the sacred name societies and different organizations which have almost made sacred names um, their religion just as some outfits almost make the calendar their religion. It is their one point of truth, more or less, and that's the thing they talk about, the thing that they preach, the thing that they go into, the thing that almost is consuming to them, so that that is their thing, if you will. Uh, we have tried to avoid that here by realizing that worshiping our Father in Heaven and His Son in all manner and fashion, it being a way of life, is what is truly important. It's not a matter of whether we have one or two or five doctrines correct. It is the overall worship done in the right way according to every word of God as listed in the Bible. So, we don't want to become sidetracked on Passover or calendar or names or whatever in a wrong way, but everything must be done in balance and in understanding. Now, the sacred name thing, I, though I've read about various aspects of, over the years, I have 
tended to try to ignore because there's a great deal of confusion involved in that particular aspect of religion. And each sacred names group has a little different different way of saying it, spelling it, pronouncing it, or whatever. <clears throat> and that confusion has always made me back off a bit. Uh, they've told me over the years that Jesus is not a correct word, and yet I have countered with, I have seen many prayers answered in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, I have seen people healed in that name, or using that name as authority to heal. I've had many personal prayers answered using that name. So therefore, I felt this is something that is not an important issue, uh, that God allows translation, that God allows different accents. There are many, many languages on the face of the earth today, and no two languages say something exactly the same in most cases. And even in China, you have Chinese, but you have dialects in China that even the Chinese people have trouble discerning between and among. We have that to some degree here. It's hard to sometimes determine what someone from Massachusetts or Alabama, for instance, might be saying, depending on the heaviness of their accent and so on. So, <clears throat> it's something that I had tried to dismiss but there's a couple of yahoos that have made me stick my nose in it here lately because they'd come up with some things that I think are important and perhaps the whole story was not entirely there and in fact I've been scratching my head over two or three issues for several weeks trying to figure it out and really it did not come clear completely I think until this morning when it all seemed to come together and all the questions seem to be answered. Now, maybe there is more to learn that I don't know yet, but I want to go into this today, and let's determine some things, and I think learn some things today that uh, I never knew, and I don't think any of us did. <clears throat> now, some of you may recall that many years ago, and I don't know exactly when he did it, that Herbert Armstrong started using the eternal for Lord in the Old Testament. And through his preaching over the years and decades, you usually heard him, when it came to Lord in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, refer to him as the eternal. Now, why did he do that? Why was that necessary? What's wrong with just saying Lord? Well, I think I wasn't there uh, when he made the decisions, but looking at the subject, I think that the key points must have been that the word Lord has been misused and abused by pagan societies and people from time immemorial. They have their own gods, they have their own uh, lords, their own rulers, and as a result of that, plus the confusion over the pronunciation of the word that is translated Jehovah in the Old Testament, he decided there needed to be a better answer. <clears throat> so, he came up with, I suppose he probably looked in Strong's Concordance, and he looked up Lord, and it said the Eternal, or the Eternal One. In the New Testament, it's a different Greek word, which means the supreme ruler, essentially, or the one over everything. 
uh, is what it means in the New Testament. Now, part of the confusion stemmed back then, decades ago, and yet still does today, over Jehovah. Now, the word Jehovah is only used four times in the Old Testament as such, J-E-H-O-V-A-H. But it's the exact same Hebrew word, number 3068 in Strong's, which is translated Lord over well, thousands of times in the Old Testament. I guess my, new, my uh, PC study Bible only went to 5,000, so it said 5,000 times that uh, that word, 3068, translated Lord or Jehovah, was used 5,000 times, but it stopped at Isaiah 12. Uh, so there are a lot more times. And in the New Testament, uh, a different Greek word for Lord is used, and it was used uh, seven, 800 times, whatever it was. But the confusion over Jehovah, or Lord, has been that in the Hebrew, it is Y-H-V-H with no vowel sounds. Most of you may be familiar with that. So that no one knows exactly how Y-H-V-H was pronounced. They've tried to put vowel sounds in there, and they've come up with Jehovah, or the sacred names people have used more Yahweh, uh, Yah standing for God, and they put their own vowel sounds in. And indeed, Yahweh may be fairly close. But no one knows for sure how Y-H-V-H should be said if you use that word instead of the King James word Lord or Jehovah. So there's been a great deal of confusion over that. As a result, Herbert Armstrong said, well, it means the Eternal One. So instead of saying Lord or Jehovah, I will substitute the Eternal. Now, you see, that does away with all these gods of the world because none of them are eternal. None of them will last. Even Satan the devil will not last as a Lord, whether he is incarcerated forever and kept away from the family of God or whether he is utterly destroyed as some people think. Others think he'll be rehabbed, and you know there are all kinds of ideas out there. But the point here is, <clears throat> the God who created the universe and rules it today is the only thing that is eternal today. Now we can get hung up on exactly how a name ought to be, and is God that hung up on exactly how a name is pronounced? I have never thought so, and to this day standing here, I still don't think so. He is more concerned about us understanding who he is, what he is, what he believes, how he lives, and himself as a being as opposed to a name that we might call him. And whether it is phonetically pronounced exactly right, or with just the right accent, or whatever, just as we would prefer our reputation to be known by what we are, that is, if it is a reputable one, as opposed to exactly what we're called. Now, on the other hand, we are concerned when somebody writes our name, aren't we, that they spell it right. We would like to have it right. But is that name what you are? No, God is going to give us a new name when we're accepted into his kingdom, and it will reflect exactly what we are. 
So we won't in that sense change, but our name will be changed to reflect us. So we as a being, as a character, are more important in the beginning than the name is. Now we have to change, overcome, grow, and become something that God would give a favorable name to. He changed the name of several in the Old Testament to a name that better reflected their use in his plan and their type of him as God, like Abram to Abraham and so on. So God does that. He will change our name to fit us instead of making us fit our name. So the point I'm trying to make here is that that being, powerful, eternal God, is more important than the accent we might use or the exact pronunciation. And I think that in that sense, he hid the pronunciation on purpose. He did not want us to know exactly how his name was pronounced, lest we worship the name instead of him. Now, couldn't he have made it very clear how white VH should be spoken? Yes, he could have, but he didn't. So he must have had a very important overriding reason why we would not even be able to know exactly how to pronounce the name of our Father in Heaven. Must be pretty important. You know, it's important to us for our children to pronounce our names right. No, son, that's Daddy. No, we want him to get it right. Well, God wants us to get it right, too. But I think that there is a time for things to be made right, and there's a time when we have to be in the dark to some degree. Okay? There are a couple of different ways of getting names from one language to another. One is by translation, and that preserves the meaning. Translate it from one to another, you preserve the meaning. Now, in some cases, it's difficult to do because the words don't match, and the meanings may not be clear in one language as they are in the other language. If you study language any, you begin to learn that there are translation problems. My name, Daryl, for instance, is virtually impossible to translate into Spanish because there's not a corresponding name in Spanish that fits it, like John and Juan, for instance. It just isn't there. Uh, and I've had people who know the language very well try it. Now, there is, Daryl is a derivative of David, and there is a direct translation for David, see. So, in translation, you do have problems. Now, another form they use is transliteration, which gets the sound the same, but often loses the meaning. And you have that problem with languages. And yet all peoples around the earth, and God is going to gather his elect from all corners of the earth, and he's even going to gather his remnant from all corners of the earth, here physically in this age. And they're going to know all different languages, and they will all have used God's name a little differently. And in their language, it will be different than it is for us. And yet I believe, with all my heart, that God has answered the prayers of people in Malaysia, and in even Australia, uh, or whatever, you know, wherever. That's an English language, but it's different than ours. So it's, it's different. 
He even hears prayers from people in Alabama. So it doesn't matter in that sense exactly how it is said. It is who does it address. Okay? I think that using the self-existent or eternal one is probably a good answer, and Herbert Armstrong came up with that, to Lord in the Old Testament. I've tended to substitute it most of my life. I've started using Lord a little more for some reason more recently, but I think eternal is probably the best answer to that particular one. Now let's go on to Jesus. Some of you probably realize, some of you may not, that that word was never applied in that form to the one who became Messiah and the Christ. He was never called Jesus in the whole time that he walked the face of the earth. The name simply did not exist. Does that mean it's bad? Well, let's go on and see some things, and we can answer that. You see, there was no J in Hebrew, there was no J in Latin or Greek, and there was no Latin in, or no J in English until about 500 years ago. So it was completely impossible to say Jesus. It didn't exist. Never had. When the King James translation of the Bible, which most of us use, was translated in 1611, the J was just being introduced into the English language. And the information that I have thus far is that in 1611, when that translation first came out, it still used I instead of J. And in the Greek, it was I-E-O-S-O-U-S or something like that. I-E-S-O-U-S was the way it was spelled in the 1611 translation. When the second edition came out around 1620 to 1630, whatever the exact date, it had been changed to a J because the J had been accepted into the English language. So instead of uh, Iams, sounds like dog food, Iams or whatever, uh, it became James. Instead of Iasus, it became Jesus. So that was when it was first introduced as a J. Uh, the same is true of Joshua we use from the Old Testament. There was no J in the Hebrew language, and it had an I, began with an I. There's no such thing as a J sound. Now, the sacred names people, and if you go into, if you go into the concordance and look up Jesus, it'll give the Greek word, but it has no definition. It refers you back to the Hebrew word, Yahshua, or Joshua, however, whatever form you spell it and say it. It's where the word Jesus comes from. So they have said, well, Jesus did not exist, therefore we should use Yahshua or Jehoshua, or some even say Joshua, even though the J was not there. And they've come up with at least ten different ways to spell or say what they claim to be the name, the correct name for Jesus today. So you will not hear them saying Jesus, it would be Yahshua, or whatever form they've determined to use. <clears throat> now one reason I have not wanted to go there is because of the confusion that is there. And how do you exactly get it right? Should we use the Greek? 
Jesus. Now, get your tongue around that one. I, can't, I usually can't even remember how to say it. I have to look at it. Iesus. We being English-speaking, do we have to say Iesus? Because that was the Greek name properly used in the Koine Greek or Common Greek when the Bible was written. Or is it okay to go back to where it came from and use the Hebrew Yahshua or Yahashua, which is hard for us to say too. Jesus just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? That one's an easy one. But to go back and have to speak Hebrew or Greek never seemed to me to be always the complete right answer to that. <coughs> if you paid attention, you probably noticed that Herbert Armstrong rarely used the term or name Jesus. He usually referred to him as Christ. Uh, he, he would if he was reading the Bible say Jesus or Jesus Christ. He didn't pick up his skirts and run in holy horror from the name. But he tended to use something different. And a lot of us have done the same thing. Uh, a lot of you and I have been a little backed up from Jesus as such because of the Protestant usage of it. They see a different Christ. They see a false Christ. They see a false religion. And then we hear it used over and over and over, almost like vain repetition by televangelists and other preachers in the world. And when something is misused and abused like that, we tend to kind of back off a little bit from it. So, some of us have had a little bit of an e uneasy feeling at times about even using the word Jesus, especially when not linked with Jesus Christ, uh, because... And I've used a lot of times the whole thing, the title and the name, Jesus Christ, because I didn't want it to sound like a Protestant saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over and over again. So we have subtle ways of things we may not even been fully aware of, of avoiding something that sounded Protestant. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Luke 24. <coughs> Luke 24. Let's pick up something here that we may have overlooked. Now, Christ was talking here to his disciples, and they were having trouble believing it was him resurrected. Uh, pick it up in verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you here any food? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and, eat, and did eat before them. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now there are dozens of prophecies throughout the Old Testament about the Savior to come or Messiah, as it was called in the Old Testament a few places. And Messiah and Christ actually mean the same exact thing. In uh, Hebrew, Messiah means anointed. In Greek, Christ means anointed. So he is the anointed one. So if you use the word Messiah, or you use the word Christ, maybe you don't even realize what you were saying, but that's the word that you're using is the anointed one. 
So Jesus would be a first name, and Christ, in that sense, would be a title. Jesus the Anointed. But there are dozens of scriptures in the Old Testament that were uh, absolutely fulfilled to the letter in the New Testament. I'm going to read one to you in a moment. All things are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now, in this context, he mentioned eating honeycomb, didn't he? Let's go back to Isaiah 7. We'll find a prophecy here that I think most of the religious world is probably at least somewhat familiar with, but have ignored. Isaiah 7, verse 14. And he said, Hear you now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Well, before I read the rest of this, let's, let me give you a little bit of the idea of the context here, because I think it's very important. By the time we're done today, we'll see that it is very important for right now and the months and years just ahead of us. It may not be as important today, <clears throat> but it will become very important, I think you'll see, by the time this is over. Now, this chapter in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, <clears throat> are about the end time. Uh, they're about a conspiracy within Israel. They're about the confederacy that will come against Israel in the end time, the new world order that we see rising before us today in Isaiah 8, and about the Assyrian coming in. I think it's in chapter 9 and 11 again probably as well. So the whole context here of Isaiah is of the end time nations of Israel, and it is about the end time church, even more specifically in some respects. So recognize that when we go back to this prophecy, that we're not talking about ancient history, we're talking about today and tomorrow, if you will. So these leaders of Israel were worried about the conspiracy, and I'm not going through the whole thing here about who was conspiring against whom within Israel. Uh, you can read that if you want. It's apart from the subject, so I'll pass on over it. But here someone was questioning about a sign as to whether the conspiracy would work or not. <clears throat> and Isaiah said in verse 11, Ask you a sign of the eternal near God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the eternal. And he said, Hear you now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? So he says, There's a sign going to be given whether you ask for one or not, Ahaz. Don't weary God here. Let's, let's get on with it. <clears throat> Verse 14. Therefore, the Eternal Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a direct prophecy of the Messiah or the Christ to come and a direct prophecy of what his name would be. His name would be Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat. Now, he was specifically fulfilling this prophecy when he ate that honeycomb in Luke 24. And that's what he said, that all these prophecies had to be fulfilled in him, and they were. But this prophecy then was not just for Ahaz or a sign for him, it was a sign for the New Testament church, of which we are a part, 
and it has to do with these end-time conspiracies and confederacies against Israel, which will destroy this country. So that is the context in which this particular sign was given. Now, some of those signs of Christ in the Old Testament were jerked out of a context and brought forward as a fulfillment, just as this one is. It's like it was taken out of here and taken there to be fulfilled, and yet it still has a bigger fulfillment in the future based on the context in which it is taken from. Okay, so we're talking about prophecy here. That's going to become important before we're done today. So this could refer to nothing but Mary. She's the only virgin that has ever conceived, despite the pleas of some girls. And a bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that word in the Greek means, in the Greek, in the Hebrew means God with us, is what the Hebrew word Emmanuel means. Now, as we go forward in the fulfilling of prophecy in this end time age, can you name anything that we need to have more than God with us? We're going to need that desperately. And this will become more important as we go. <clears throat> okay, let's go on over to... It talks then about the Assyrian coming in toward the end of this chapter. Uh, and how Israel, chapter 8, verse 4, is taken away before the king of Assyria uh, in a very short time. And he used the example of... Uh, Isaiah's son, which had just been born, so this is not about Isaiah's son. When it talks about Emmanuel, it's talking about Christ. But Isaiah's son, they said before he would know to say, Daddy and Mommy, the king of Samaria, or the king of Assyria would destroy Samaria, Samaria which was the uh, capital of Israel. And it is an end-time prophecy as well. So these issues that we're talking about in chapter 7 and 8 are going to become critical and critical over a short period of time. Okay? That's the point here. Maher Shalal Hashbaz in verse 1 means uh, spoil soon, pray, come quick, or make haste to the spoil or pray. And he had Isaiah name his son that because the destruction would come suddenly and quickly. Now, let's see how it's tied in. Verse uh, Nine, associate yourselves, O you peoples, and you shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Now, when has God issued a challenge to all the nations of the world and said, Gird yourselves, and you'll be broken in pieces? Not so far. It's an end-time prophecy. So we can see, clearly see from that that he is issuing a challenge that will come at the end. Armageddon-type circumstance, if you will. Take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. This name, Emmanuel, is going to become very, very important to us at some point in the future. For the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, 
say you're not a confederacy, and then it goes on in, don't worry about the confederacy or the conspiracy or the new world order. Be concerned and fear me, God says. Now, he uses the word Emmanuel, let's see, one more time. Where is 8, verse 8, I think it is. Oh, yeah, I I skipped over it. I meant to read that. Chapter 8, verse 8, talking about the king of Assyria. And he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wing shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, which land has he chosen as his own and given to his people Israel? We know today it's not just Palestine, but it's all the nations where Israel migrated to over the centuries and includes America today as one of the tribes of Israel. (coughs) So the Assyrian is going to overflow the lands of Israel, the lands of God, God's own people, and more particularly, God's true chosen people, for God will be with us. He's not going to be with the Methodists and the Baptists and the... All those people out there, Catholics. He's not going to be with them. They're going to be with the beast. God is only going to be with his true called out ecclesia, his called out ones. That's where he's going to be. So when this prophecy is made, it's our land, and God is with us. There are only going to be two camps. There's going to be those who worship the beast, which will be the entire earth, and a few who worship the true God. That's that's the way it's coming down according to the book of Revelation. So, Emmanuel is used twice in this context, and then the meaning of it, God is with us, is used again. Could have used the name there, but he chose to use the meaning of the name. So here is a prophecy saying his name would be Emmanuel. Now let's go on to Matthew 1 and read something very interesting. Chapter 1, verse 20 of Matthew. But while Joseph thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Eternal appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So here a virgin did conceive. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, as it says in my King James, and my margin it says Savior, uh, because it comes from the root word Joshua or Yahshua or however you want to say it in the Old Testament, which means God is salvation. So God is salvation or Savior is essentially means the same thing. So this word means or meant in Hebrew. There was no Greek equivalent. Uh, it had no Greek definition and Strong's Concordance. It just simply referred you back to Yahshua of the Old Testament which meant God is salvation or Savior. But it does say, and you shall call his name Savior, or God is salvation, or however you put it, Joshua, or could it be translated and transliterated and come up with the name Jesus? We'll ask that question and hold off on going into it further at the moment. For he shall save his people from their sins. So right there it shows the meaning is Savior or God is salvation. That is his purpose for coming, is to save his people from their sins. Now, that is established as a name for the Messiah or Christ, isn't it? Right there in Matthew 1.20. Let's read on. She shall bring forth... Let's see. 
verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prop, by, of the Lord by the prophet, saying. All right, here then is an absolute, direct fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, I don't think he stuttered. That's very clear, isn't it? That what happened between Joseph, Mary, and God in heaven was something that was a fulfillment directly in detail of a prophecy and that that child was to be named Emmanuel or God with us. Now, here's something I wrestled with. You have two names given here. Verse 20 and in verse 23, you have different names for the same child. Now, how can this be and how did that come to be and which should we use? Now, interestingly, the word, or the name Emmanuel, is never used again in the New Testament. Never again. Just here. It says you'll call his name Emmanuel, and then you never call him that. Now, that's kind of interesting in itself. Now, the word Jesus, or Joshua, was never anywhere prophesied in the Old Testament as being a name for the Messiah or the Savior. Never. Not anywhere. Joshua was used for the one who helped bring Israel in with Moses to the promised land. And there's a Joshua that is a leader at the end time church. Well, was back in when they came out of the Babylonian captivity and will be again at the end time. But never is there a prophecy where it says that the Savior or Messiah will be called Joshua or Jesus. Never anywhere. And yet, perplexingly, that is the name out of the two given in Matthew 1 that is used throughout the rest of the Bible, through the Greek text. Now, that tells me either we're missing something or God has held something back for something to be understood later, or the Greek texts very early were tampered with so that we got a wrong name in there and it should have been Emmanuel all the way. Now, somehow I found it difficult in trying to sort all this out that God would have allowed that degree of tampering with Scripture itself. And lo and behold, I don't think He did. The answer that I've come up with so far, and I think it is correct as you'll probably see, is that there's a reason that this other name was used, Jesus or Joshua, all this time, and we're going to have a need for the name Emmanuel in the very, very near future. But that has been withheld until now for a purpose. But I don't think there could be any question that, his na- that a correct name for Christ is Emmanuel. It was specifically predicted, it was specifically validated in Matthew 1, Therefore, it is a valid name in Scripture, okay? If you listen to the Messiah, it'll talk about Emmanuel, God with us. If you ask religionists, some some will say, oh yeah, that that name is there, and it, it does pertain to Christ, but it's just a title. That's the way they pass it off. Uh, I've asked some church people, 
what is the name of Christ? A couple of people thought a minute and said, Emmanuel. They remembered Isaiah 7. So the Bible itself establishes that. Now, an interesting thing about the name Emmanuel is that it doesn't matter whether you're using Hebrew, Greek, Latin, English, some 30 languages, all spell it and say it exactly the same. Now, that removes an awful lot of confusion, doesn't it? doesn't matter. Latin, Greek, Hebrew, you don't have to go through the Yahshua, Yahahiyapapapapa, on and on, trying to figure out how to say this. It's the same in all those languages. Now, it is also not the same, to see the other side of the coin, in probably hundreds of other languages and dialects on earth today. So what about those others? If Emmanuel is correct in the critical uh, languages that it needs to be, i.e., those languages the Bible was written in and the language we speak today, if it's the same there... Then what about those others? What about the Chinese? They wouldn't probably be able to even say Emmanuel. They'd think it was Jean Ku or something. Well, Ku, I guess that'd be Korean, but whatever, you know what I mean. So what about those others? Can we translate? Does God allow translation? I think He does. You see, the problem with the Protestants is not so much the name they use, but the God they believe in, and the wrong doctrines that are associated with it. So you can besmirch and misuse and abuse a name, can't you? Just as somebody could tell lies about you and besmirch, misuse, and abuse your name, and they wouldn't be talking about the real you at all. You might be better or worse than they describe. Who knows? But it wouldn't be the real you. So you could use the correct name... For God, and abuse that name, couldn't you? Well, if it's been misused and abused, what then do you do? Based on my experience, trying to live God's way, based on the church's experience, I think God does allow us to translate. I do not think that using Yahshua is absolutely necessary. It did come from the, what we have as an English word, Joshua. But there was no I on Joshua either. But God has allowed that name to be used in the Bible. And in that name, Herbert Armstrong did an entire work. And God has answered many, many, many prayers. So let's see if we can make this simple. I've already touched on the idea that in Isaiah we have a context there of world war, of all the nations being challenged to come associate themselves and fight God. It talks about the nations of Israel being destroyed. That is the context in which the prophecy of the name Emmanuel for the Savior was introduced, then validated in Matthew 1, and never, ever after that used again.
Now, what can we make of this? A, I don't believe that we have been wrong or that God has particularly cared that we have used the name Jesus. Uh, I don't think He particularly cares if we perhaps try to go back and be a little more original and use Yahshua. There is, however, quite a bit of confusion over this. And if you think the confusion is bad now, wait till you hear what I have to say before we're done here. And it will be greatly exaggerated in terms of confusion. And when that confusion comes, we need an answer. Satan is the god of this world. Revelation 12, verse 9. Or 9, verse 12, excuse me. No, it's 12, 9. I was right the first time. Why do I doubt myself? Because I'm so often wrong. Now, he is the god of this world. And the church has long recognized, since I can remember as a child, that we have a false religion that has a false Christ. Now, many of you who have gone to Protestant or Catholic churches have seen pictures, an image, if you will, of a so-called Jesus. And that image of a long-haired, effeminate, weak-looking individual with a little drop of blood running somewhere on him was burned into your mind. And it's hard to get it completely out of your mind, even though I came out of that when I was just a little child. I can still remember in that Methodist church that huge picture of Jesus, quote-unquote, walking down a path. And he had the halo over his head, and he had a sweet look. He was fairly pretty. I won't say handsome, pretty, maybe. And he looked weak and effeminate. I read in Isaiah that he was not a good-looking man, that he was nothing that we would look at. He's not the kind of man that if he walked down the street, the women would say, wow, that's a handsome man. Or the men either. They might look at him and say, man, what's happened to him? He get beat with an ugly stick? God on purpose made him not to be handsome physically. Because it would have been easy to worship the person and look to the person and the, the physiognomy as opposed to what he was teaching and what he was. So God did not make him pretty on purpose. But that's in my mind. So that false image is there. Now, that image is named Jesus, isn't it? That's what you think of. That's what the Protestant whole world thinks of when they hear Jesus, is that image of that weakling either on the stake or walking down the path or whatever form their particular image might take. There are 2.1 billion professing Christians on earth today. 2.1 billion. And they recognize only the name Jesus. That is a name that they all identify with. They may disagree on a lot of things, but there's one thing they agree on. It's Jesus is the name of our Lord, of our Savior. They rarely use Christ, most of them. It's just Jesus. They will use Jesus Christ. They will use the Lord Jesus Christ. But to most of them, most of the time, it's Jesus. All right. We already have understood for decades that here is an image that is an incorrect image, and we're not to worship images, that is named Jesus. 
We also know that he has a day associated with his name. That is, Sunday, as the day or the weekly day of worship. So, Sunday worship is associated with Jesus, is it not? Christmas, the day he supposedly, but we know better, was born, is associated with Jesus. Easter, and what's the day in which he was supposedly crucified or resurrected, is associated with Jesus. So, all I'm saying here is that the whole Christian world associates that name. When you say Savior, when you say Messiah, when you say Lord, they associate Jesus. It's a false Christ. Wrong day to worship. Wrong image. And the name has misused, been misused and abused terribly. It represents a false Christ, a false image, a toothless religion. It's the name they use to say the law was done away with, which the rest the, rest, the whole New Testament shows you the law is not done away, at least the Ten Commandments. A body of law has been changed to a spiritual meaning, the ceremonies and so on, which we've gone through recently, but not done away. Not one jot or one tittle is done away. But they have associated their new religion that is grace only without obedience to Jesus. So his name is part and parcel with and inseparable from this world's religion. Now, the Gentile world or the rest of the world, whether they be a billion and a half Islamics or Shintoists or Buddhists or whoever, that make up the rest of the population of the earth, also associate the name Jesus with Christianity. They don't believe Christianity, but they associate the name Jesus with Christianity. So six and a half billion people on this earth associate a weak, insipid, pretty, long-haired, law-abolishing Christian as Jesus. Let's go to Revelation. Book of Revelation. Verse 9. Well, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So anyone who gives obeisance to or bows to or worships the beast is in deep, deep trouble. Eternal death is offered as the recompense for that. So that makes this pretty important. Now let's see, I think it's 13 I want next. All right, in chapter 13 of Revelation, it talks about this great beast coming up with the seven heads and ten horns and so on, which we recognize as the beast of the book of Revelation. But there is a second beast here. Let's notice verse 11. 
And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, Christ is called the Lamb of God, is he not? So this beast has two horns like a lamb. Are we beginning to make a little bit of a connection here? But he spoke like a dragon, a serpent. So he may have looked a little like the Lamb of God, but he spoke like the serpent. Interesting. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the first beast, the economic and military and political power, the second beast is going to point to and try to get everyone to worship that beast, okay? And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So this second beast that has the horns of a lamb is going to come and he's going to perform great miracles. And people will be astonished at fire coming down from heaven and consuming things. And deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So there's, there's a beast coming soon who's going to be wounded by the sword, but is going to live. It's going to have a great military defeat. Whether it be a personal cut or a military defeat of his army perhaps remains to be seen. But at any rate, there is a tremendous wound that would have been a mortal wound. But he's healed and comes back from it. And he had power to give life to the image of the beast, unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So here we're going to have a false prophet that makes an image of a beast. Wonder what that image is going to look like. Question. And if you don't worship that image, you will be killed. And he causes all, not a few, all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might be or might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So it is going to be connected with the political and economic beast, and if you do not have one of what, three or four things here. You have to have the mark or the name or the number of the name in order to buy and sell. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation over the years about this. Well, let's read verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six, or six, six, six. Now, we've speculated on that one as to who it might be. We've been looking for a man for decades that might have that name. We applied it to Joseph Strauss in Bavaria, Germany. We've applied it. I have books on my shelf at home about Prince Charles being the end-time beast and how his name adds up to 666. Uh, 
the Austrian, uh, can't think of his name, uh, his name adds up to that. I think the present Pope does. Ratzinger, born of Joseph and Mary, and all the story about him. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger adds up to 666. Now, where you get this is by each letter having a numerical value. And you add those up through the name, and you come up with a number. It could be 632, or it could be, you know, any, any number. But certain names <coughs> have come up over the years that equal 666. And so then we'll watch those people to see if they might turn into the beast and have that name and lead the new world order, the new millennium that they're going to introduce, a false millennium, a fake millennium, a counterfeit, if you will, of Satan. They're going to say everything's going to be well in the world if you take this name, this image, this entity, this mark, you can buy and sell, you'll have peace, and everything will go well with you. They're setting a war up between Christianity and the Islamic world. That's what the Pope's remarks were all about recently when he made some quotes about the Islamics and their God. He didn't apologize for it, for then he would be fallible, and he is infallible, so he couldn't have made a mistake in the eyes of the Catholics without ruining his whole position. He did not... That's a smart man now, Ratzinger. He uses words you and I have never heard of. He writes books that are hard to understand because it's above our capacity to comprehend. He didn't have a slip of the tongue and make those direct quotes by mistake. Albert Pike and others in the New World Order, way before the ninth, in the 1800s, formulated a plan for three world wars. The two came off, the first two, just as they said they would. The last one, if it is necessary, they said, will be between Christendom and the Islamic world. The Pope knows that. He's part of the New World Order. He's stirring it up. He's furthering the cause. He's helping prepare the war between those two large groups of people. Is exactly what he is perpetrating and doing. Wasn't a mistake or slip of the tongue. So we have a great confrontation about to occur in the world. Let me read here before going on Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, we have scriptures in Acts. Let's see, I want to go to Acts 4. These may have come to mind since I've been talking about this. So let's go there. Acts 4. Paul, uh, Peter here is talking in verse 10. Be it known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Now, I believe that the name 
Iesus was used by the Bible writers. They allowed a con a, a uh, translation into Greek, and then it was allowed that that be translated either as Jesus or or uh, Yeshua at first, and later Jesus. That God allowed that, and He had a great purpose in mind in so doing. So it is a true name. And by it, you could be saved. This is the stone, which is set at naught of you by builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, or there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So, the Christ, whatever his name is, or whichever one we might be using, remember it's also in Isaiah 9, I believe it is, it says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So he has many names. He could be called Counselor, Prince of Peace, many titles, our Healer. On and on it goes. He is the only being whereby we might be saved. He's the one who came to this earth, gave up his godliness, became man, and died for our sins. That's the being we're talking about. Now, God has accepted, I believe, this name, in the New Testament. But we have also seen that there is a valid name, Emmanuel, which is in some respects even heavier validated by being in a specific prophecy and then being fulfilled in Matthew 1 where the angel himself said, you shall call his name Emmanuel, and this fulfills Isaiah. Very clear. Where this other name came from that the angel gave G, uh, uh, the baby is not prophesied. But it was used, and it was used by the angel who told Joseph that. So that validates it, doesn't it? In some form or another, whether there was a J sound or not, and in the Greek it was Iesus. Now let's go on to uh, Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I'm not going to keep you long, I don't think, today. I think we'll get through this fairly quickly now. Philippians 2, and I want to pick the context up. It's talking about Christ Jesus, verse 5, and how He would come down and humble Himself, even the death of the stake. Verse 9, Wherefore God also has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So that being, having come here and humbled himself, is raised up to be above everyone else or anything else except the Father himself. And he's one with him. It is not so much his name there, a particular one name, because as we've seen, he has lots of names, but his being, his character, his self, if you will. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now there's a statement by Paul that said every name should worship the name Jesus or Yeshua, if you prefer or Iesus, if you're Greek.
Now, Paul wrote that. God read that. God canonized that in the Bible. You know who else read that? Satan, the devil, read that. He knows Scripture inside and out. Matthew 4, 4. We're to live by every word of God. And that's what God or Christ used to defeat Satan in that epic battle after 40 days of fasting. He used Scripture. But Satan twisted Scripture for his own purposes. Now, we know Satan is a great counterfeiter. He's counterfeited the plan of God. He's counterfeited the religion of God. He's counterfeited a false Christ, an antichrist. He's counterfeited everything God ever did. Let's read on just for a moment in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's that we might be in that resurrection and marry Christ on the day that this day, the day of atonement, symbolizes. So God is working in us, and we have to work this thing out with fear and trembling. It is interesting that that is in the context of the name Jesus, how that is a name whereby we might be saved, and it is a name that every tongue, every language, every knee should confess and bow to. Don't lose that thought. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, that the eternal knows them that are his, and let, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, the Protestant religion of Jesus is that you don't have to depart from iniquity. It'll all be given by the grace of God, or forgiven by the grace of God. You're once saved, always saved, and you don't have to obey or do anything else once you accept the name of Jesus you're saved. Now that is a terrible counterfeit of the truth. Paul calls the law holy and just and good and talks about obedience. And John even closes the book of Revelation by saying no liar, adulterer, or uh, thief and so on will enter the kingdom of God. So you cannot break the laws of God and be in the kingdom of God. And yet, the religion of Jesus today says you don't have to obey. By grace are you saved, by grace only are you saved through faith, and not of works. Although the context goes on and says, but we are created unto good works, and we must do good works, and on and on. I won't get into all of that any deeper than that. But it is by Christ and everyone who is named through the name of the Anointed One, Christ, has to depart from iniquity. So that false religion won't work. And we do have to look to the name of the anointed. 1 John 3. 1 John 3. Notice verse 22, which echoes what I just said. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We're not going to receive what we ask unless we keep His commandments and please Him. 
And this is His commandment, that we should believe the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. So the name is associated with true religion, and yet it has been tacked on a false religion. That comes as a great shock and surprise, doesn't it? Because Satan has been deceiving and counterfeiting since the very beginning. All right, let's see if we can put this all together now. Revelation, I mean, Matthew 24, verse 9. I'll pick up another thought here. Matthew 24, we're familiar with this, but this is a good context to bring it up. Matthew 24, verse 9, is talking about the end time troubles to come. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. We'll be hated of all nations for his name's sake. Let me ask you a question. If you profess Jesus in 2.1 billion of the people's earth's populace, would they kill you for it? No. They'd say, you're one of us, brother. You love Jesus, we love you. In other words, is that the name that they are going to kill us over? All right, so let's use our imaginations for a moment and see if we can pull this together. Would Satan use a false name? Or would he use a name that had been validated by God, that prayer had been answered to by God, and he would appropriate that name to himself as a great counterfeit? Now, really, can't we see he's already done that? It just hasn't had the final fulfillment yet. He's already appropriated the name Jesus to his day of worship. He's appropriated the name Jesus to his lawless grace religion. He's appropriated the name Jesus to his holy days, holidays, Christmas and Easter. He's, he's moved the, the image of Jesus from that which God created to a false image of a petulant, effeminate, weak man. In other words, he's taken everything ungodly and attached to the name Jesus to it. Now, all this body of paganism and false religion, don't you think he is going to in some way officially attach the name Jesus to? He really already has, hasn't he? Now, where is it going to go from here? We have a beast that is going to arise very shortly. And he's going to have an image. He's going to have a name. It's going to be the name of a man, and the name is 666. Now, this is going to be a false Christ. The Bible all through calls it the Antichrist. The one who is against Christ, or is opposite of Christ, is not Christ but didn't Christ himself say, many will come in my name saying that they are Jesus and deceive? I believe that the beast power to come 
will call himself Jesus. Can you imagine anyone who wants to rule the whole Christian world calling himself Joe or Bill or Jim or Brad or Arnold or Charles or something of that nature? Joseph Ratzinger. No. He may have a physical name. Indeed, it might add up to 666. But here's something that will blow your socks off. The name Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrew adds up numerically to 666. The name Lord Jesus Christos, which is Latin for Lord Jesus Christ, adds up to 666. Hebrew and Latin by extension Greek. He will use the name Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be a man and it will add to 666 and the world will not recognize that because they are so familiar with Jesus and Lord Jesus Christ that they'll be sucked in. The whole Christian world would recognize that as the name. And if it is accompanied by great miracles and fire coming down from heaven and all kinds of things that have to be supernatural, then they will automatically say, that is the Lord Jesus Christ come. And He's going to set up a millennium on earth. And we're going to have peace under the Lord Jesus Christ. That is going to be the name the false Christ uses. I cannot imagine him using any other name now that I've thought about it. That's the name he'd have to use in order to deceive the whole world. Because the Christian world would accept it instantly. And the rest of the world who has associated the name Jesus with Christianity would also see how that name fit this man. He will be a man. He will be a false Christ. That's why it says, here is wisdom, there in Revelation 13. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. Who but God's people are going to have true understanding? He's telling us something here. Here's some wisdom now. Someone who knows God is going to understand this. For it is the number of a man. And his number is six. Hundred, threescore, and six. We've attached 666 to a lot of names that added up to it over the decades. But I don't think we ever hit on the real one. Now, which man will it be? Will it be the present Pope? Could be. He's born of Joseph and Mary. He's Austrian-German. He's Catholic. Could very well be. He is also, by title, the vicar, the replacement, if you will, of Christ. That's what Pope is. It isn't a great stretch of the imagination for him not to only be the vicar of Christ, but to call himself the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe it, call fire down from heaven and soak you off the face of the earth. And it would deceive the whole world. Now, 
Where does Emmanuel come in in that context? Who are you and I going to worship? The Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ? How are you going to know the difference? Got the same name. Now, we would recognize different doctrine between the false Messiah, false Christ, the Antichrist. But how the whole world accepts him and we say, I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would they kill you? What if you said, I worship Emmanuel, God with us? Would they kill you for that? Yes. You've got to worship the Lord Jesus Christ here. Pope, what's his name? Or whoever it turns out to be. Or you die. They, I think what God has done by prophesying Emmanuel and Isaiah in an end-time prophecy, and then using the name and validating it in Matthew 1, and then ignoring it from then on, is that he knows Satan the devil very well. And he knows that whatever name he used for the Savior in the New Testament would be one that Satan the devil would counterfeit, misuse, abuse, and destroy. Doesn't destroy the being. Doesn't destroy Messiah or Christ. It destroys the reputation. It destroys the right image. It destroys the right doctrine. Everything. By counterfeiting it. So God introduced it as a prophecy that had to be fulfilled, was fulfilled when Mary conceived, and was noted as such, and then dropped until the end time when Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 come into play. And therefore, there will come a time shortly when you and I will probably take the name that is validated in Scripture for our Lord, for our Master, for our Messiah, for our Christ, and use it so that we have a way to differentiate between the true Christ and the false Christ. Because he'll be called Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be the biggest counterfeit and deception that Satan has ever foisted off on this world. We will look to Emmanuel, God, with us. And when the Day of Atonement comes, after the first resurrection, we will marry Emmanuel. The name he was prophesied to be given, which was held in abeyance until it is again needed. So I'm not saying that if you prayed using the name Jesus or Yahshua or Joshua, that you have sinned or that it was a wrong name. But I think it is a name that has been abused and misused by Satan to bring forth a false Christ. We worship the same being we always have. But I think that it would be a good idea to start using the name Emmanuel more so that we can become familiar with it and be comfortable using it. Since this has come to my attention, I've been in my personal prayers praying in the name of Emmanuel more. And it works for me. 
But when you've said, in the name of Jesus Christ, all those years, it is a change. It's different. And it feels different. And I think that maybe God may be bringing this out to us now so that we can see that there is a valid name there that God Himself used in the Old and the New Testament and that we see a great Antichrist coming who will take the name, the true name, a true name, of the true Christ and apply it to a false Christ. And we need to know the difference. And we need to be able to know the difference by name. Now, I don't pray to Christ anyway. What did He say? We just read it in Matthew 6. Our Father, which is in heaven. Now, where is the simplicity in Christ? It's real simple to address our Father. We don't have to worry too much about YHVH and exactly how you say Yah or Yahweh or Jehovah. We can address our Father in heaven who is behind this whole creative thing and the plan of God. And that's quite simple, is it? Isn't it? That's the simplicity of Christ. Emmanuel is also very simple in an end time that is going to create great confusion. It's simple because it's the same in Italian, I mean, excuse me, in Latin, in Greek, in Hebrew, and in English. You don't have to worry about whether you're saying Jesus exactly right, or Yahshua, or Yahshua, or any other variation that man might have put on the name Jesus. And then when you add the confusion that is going to come, that even the very elect would be deceived, if it were possible, by a false Christ, a beast, who calls himself the Lord Jesus Christ, then isn't it nice to have something simple like our Father in heaven and Emmanuel, which is no confusion on spelling or saying, and which is in the Bible, Old and New Testament, as a name for our Lord, our Master, our Savior, our Messiah in the end time. Think about that one.